Today is the second day of our September-October seven-day session. It's the the 30th of September 2019. And uh, we left off yesterday um, with uh, Maureen Stewart having just uh, completed her first seven-day session and um, realizing that she wanted to do every single session she could from then on. And she had the good karma to be able to do that. She had the means and a flexible um, job as a, a pianist and a piano teacher and concert pianist to be able to organize her life to do that, and family who was who was um, supportive. Um, and so over the next um, decade, decade or more, the rest of the 60s and into the, into the 70s, she went to every session she could. Um, in New York with Yasutani Roshi, and then when he became uh, too frail to come to the States, she did sessions with um, Soen Nakagawa Roshi, and also uh, with uh, Edo Roshi, who had first come to America as Yasutani Roshi's interpreter, then as Taisan, and then was later uh, sanctioned to teach by Soen Nakagawa Roshi. She, she later broke with Edo Roshi over his um, mistreatment of women, that is to say his... Uh, serial sexual misconduct, which also continued after after she had broken with him. But it was really um, of these three, it was um, Soen Nakagawa Roshi who um, made the biggest impression on her. And I'll just um, read a little bit. This is from from uh, Subtle Sound, same book we were looking at yesterday about her um, impressions of Soen Nakagawa. And I'm sure most people know that um, Soen Nakagawa was also an important teacher for Roshi Kaplow. In fact, he he, um, looked after him uh, when he first got to Japan and then Recommended that he go and, and train with Harada Roshi, who was um, Yasutani Roshi's teacher. From the moment Maureen first encountered Soen Roshi at an evening sitting at the New York Zendo in this, that summer of 1968, she felt a remarkable connection, one she likened to an open channel. She found Soen Roshi's teaching style quite different from that of Yasutani Roshi. Soen Roshi preferred to allow students to ripen at their own rate. His zazen was inspiring in its palpable profundity. He often sat through kinhin after kinhin, and his teisho and doksan meetings were filled with spontaneity, humor, loving kindness, and poetry. He was passionately fond of theatre, music, and literature, and was famous in Japan for his haiku. 
Goethe and Beethoven were among his favourite Western artists, and at the conclusion of Sichin that summer, the participants were treated to the Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And you can see how um, these things might have appealed to um, Maureen as, as a musician herself. A little bit more from from uh, meetings with remarkable women on the same topic. And this is Maureen um, Stewart talking about about how she remembers so in Nakagawa. Everything was strict, but warm, always warm always compassionate, everything, absolutely everything immersed in compassion. There was nothing that escaped him. Somebody told me about going to Ryuchakuji, Soen's temple in Japan, for Sishin. There was, this was a Sishin just for monks. And this poor man's feet were bleeding from running back and forth in, the rough, in rough straw sandals. He was exhausted and quite discouraged. So and Roshi came and looked at those sandals with blood on them, and in their place he put wonderful soft slippers. Inconspicuous, wonderful attention. He was so aware of each of us always, turning every situation, however dark, into some wonderful teaching, keeping the feeling of embracing the whole Sangha when he conducted Sashin. And then she, she quotes him. You are not just here for yourself alone, but for the sake of all sentient beings, I can hear him saying. Keep your mind pure and warm. Just to be doing that, just step by step, simply step by step, with reverence and a grateful heart, that was um, Soen. He turned everything that was parched for me into something that was shining and fresh. Once he had a sashin and somebody became very upset and ran away. It was painful and a painful and difficult thing for all of us. And he, and he turned it into such a compassion for this person. Instead of people being upset for their own egocentric practice and disturbance of their zazen, he turned it into something wonderful. He did extraordinary things at Sashin. He would look out the window and see the moon shining. Up! We're going for a moonwalk. And we would go out and look at the stars. He always said too, don't look to me. Don't hang on me as a teacher. Don't attach yourself to me. Look at, to the universe. Look at these stars. Look at this moonlight. Look at the sunrise. At one of his last doksans, everybody came up the stairs, and there he was, standing on the landing. He turned everybody to the window, and there was the sun rising. He put his hands on the back of our shoulders, and we chanted together, looking at the sunrise. Uh, 
mentioned in the in in the um, opening remarks that this paradoxically this this rule we have about keeping the eyes lowered um, can actually mean that we can be deeply struck by what does come into our visual field. So it's not a matter of uh, seeking out um, experiences, latching on to things that we see, but to be open to the universe. And the more the more empty our mind is and the more we we relinquish um, latching on to visual stimuli, the more we will be able to appreciate the the beauty and limitlessness of the universe. And it can be in, in tiny things. I have a vivid memory at, at one session of standing up at the end of uh, a chanting service to do prostrations and uh, looking down and seeing my toenails uh, with, with light re- being reflected off them, the, the, the Zendo lights, and and experiencing this this wonder at the 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 reflective power, you could say, of of everything. Even toenails. So in in uh, meeting so on um Maureen Stewart really had had um found a teacher, the one with whom she really had um deep karmic affinity. And this is a very mysterious thing. You know, it doesn't um mean that one teacher is better or worse than another teacher, but that we 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 find somebody um, with whom we're on more or less the same wavelength, and the, there can be a sense of 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 um, being able to just trust the process that you undergo with the teacher if that if that occurs. At a certain point, um, Maureen Stewart had to move from New York City where she'd been living to um, Boston when her husband um, got a, a job there. And um, though she, she uh, it was a hard move for her to make, um, it, she ended up really um, making a connection there with um, on on Soen's recommendation, with a, with somebody there who was running the um, Cambridge Buddhist Association, and um, she came to be um, sort of really f- pretty much volunteering, working there whenever she could, 
and taking on more and more responsibilities for uh, running the, the, the Sangha. Um, and when she'd been practicing for 10 years, um, in, in uh, 1976 she was ordained uh, by, by Ada Roshi. And then... Um, Six years after that, um, Soen Roshi um, sanctioned her to teach. Just a little bit about that. Uh, Although she no longer practiced with Ada Roshi, in 1982, Maureen returned to Daibosatsu, so Zendo, that's a um, big centre in, in the Catskills, where Ada Roshi presided, um, where in a private encounter, uh, Soan Nakagawa Roshi transmitted his dharma to her. Tell your students to call you Roshi, he said, and that was that. No ceremony, no authentication, no formal recognition, no lineage papers. He, in fact, said not a word about it to anyone else. It was perhaps his greatest koan for her, a transmission definitely outside the scriptures in keeping with his unconventional spirit. How to communicate this formless transmission? What proof did she have? Immediately rumours began flying and there was no small degree of disgruntlement. Perhaps she had made the whole thing up, wanting some formal recognition. Perhaps this was simply another of Soen Roshi's eccentric acts, a mischievous test. No one knew quite how to receive this information, which quickly spread along the Dharma grapevine. As for Maureen herself, after dutifully communicating what Soen Roshi had asked her to, she told her students, please just call me Maureen. And it was not her nature to seek credentials or titles. She simply went on as she had before, wearing the same robes, keeping the same busy schedule of sesshin, daily practice, piano recitals and lessons, spending time with her children and travelling. One one wonders here with this whether perhaps um, this was just two years before Soen Nakagawa Roshi died, um, whether he was perhaps hoping that he could um, make up for um, Edo Roshi in some way by um, sanctioning Maureen Stewart to uh, to teach. One thing is 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 clear that that ultimately. Um, it's it's the students who make the teacher, not the correct papers, and we certainly can understand this in in our own lineage, where um, Roshi Kaplow never received um, official transmission, um, having fallen out with Yasutani Roshi uh, before that happened, and I could note here that that the behaviour of um, uh, Edo Roshi um, was one of the things that apparently they fell out over. So these 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 things have ramifications. But but if 
if a teacher is is um, benefiting students, um, supporting students in their in their um, dharma journeys, then that's what really counts in the end. Not whether you have the right papers and the right uh, robes. In 1987, um, Maureen Stewart was diagnosed with cancer. And here's a little bit about that. When Maureen was diagnosed with cancer in 1987, she never exhibited a moment of self-pity or fear. If anything, the level of intensity at which she customarily lived was raised several notches. Plans had already been made to travel to India with a small group of students. She made the choice not to have the advised surgery, and despite the uncertainty about her condition, she went off and had a marvellous time conducting Zazen under a descendant of the Bodhi tree beneath which Shakyamuni Buddha had realised the fundamental birthlessness and deathlessness of it all. She returned to months of medical tests, months of inconclusive evidence, and finally, months of, months of growing weakness. Still, session after session, Maureen gave of herself freely, wholeheartedly. She never seemed to pace herself, despite the fretful expressions of concern on the part of many of her students, her family, her friends. She blushed, brushed away attempts at commiseration she refused to discuss her condition and never complained, even toward the end, when she was hiding little notes to herself regarding the effectiveness and timing of various pain medications. Her demeanour was that of a fierce warrior woman. Maureen sat through Rohatsu 1989 and the weekend session of January 1990 with an all but constant cough with frequent nosebleeds, but she sat nobly and fully present. In my journal notes, and this is um, Rokoshiri Chaya speaking here, made during that Rahatsu, I wrote, Maureen's talks seem to be preparing us for her death. During Doksan last night, she told me, I have chosen a place under the birch trees in the back yard, yard where I want my ashes spread. This morning, she spoke of Soen Roshi's pure, illuminating, radiant, childlike nature and how it had evolved through great struggle and said something I never knew before, that he had once contemplated suicide. She talked of his way of speaking of no death, and that we take this form for a brief period, but that our energy continues as it had after, before our birth. Um, we can't really get into the details now of So and Roshi's um, situation, but um, one can can um, guess that his descent into dark places, including even contemplating suicide uh, were probably a major factor in the depth of his compassion for people.
On the first day of Sashin, Maureen conducted a memorial service for a Vietnamese student's father. She said, With this memorial service, we remember with tender reverence the members of our families who are no longer living. Let us realize that the ones whom we remember today existed before this birth. At that time they were without a body. Then substance was added to that spirit and they were born. Let it be clear to us that the same process of change which brought them into birth eventually brought them to death, in a way as natural as the progression of the seasons. May we remind ourselves that we are not to fall into a complacent state of mind where we are insensitive to suffering beings. Yes, we must cultivate a peaceful mind, firm and imperturbable, but we must keep the heart sensitive to the needs of others. The way it is epitomized in the Kanon Sutra, Kanon grows arms without ceasing to reach out to every cry for help. Let us try to extend this compassionate wisdom over the whole universe. In, in, in February of that year, 1990, she w- went into hospital and, um, on, and died on the 26th of that month. Maureen left no Dharma heir. Her transmission was not by way of an established lineage, <coughs> not to a select one or two. Her legacy was all-inclusive. Everyone who came into contact with her, whether as a Zen student or a piano student, a casual visitor or a family member, felt changed for having known her. Maureen was endlessly grateful to the many people in her life who had helped, encouraged and supported her in her music and in her Zen practice. To her, the Bodhisattva's vow was added the driving force of her sense of To her Bodhisattva's vow was added the driving force of her sense of obligation. Teaching, imparting her own understanding to others, was her means of repaying those debts. Health, Maureen taught us during those last months, is not the opposite of sickness. Although our habitual way of thinking is dualistic, In reality, we are all living with good cells and bad cells simultaneously, in a condition of utter impermanence. She referred to the 17th century Japanese monk Takuan Soho, who wrote 100 poems he called (coughs) dream poems. At the end of his life, he summoned his students and said, After I've died, please bury my body in the mountain behind the temple, cover it with earth and go home. Read no sutras, hold no ceremony. Receive no gifts from either monks or laity. Let the monks wear their robes, eat their meals and go on about their work as on normal days. Asked by his disciples for some last words, he said, I have no last word. At his final moment, Takuan took up his brush and wrote the Chinese character for dream put down the brush and died. This character uh, is uh, in Japanese, Yume. 
this one character, dream, Yume, Maureen commented in one of her talks, symbolized for Takuan the reality of the Dharma. It went beyond talking or not talking, is it or isn't it, just a dream. When we realize that, when we realize that we and the universe are just a dream, when alive we are alive through and through, and everything around us is alive, life is a dream, death is a dream, heaven and earth and all things under the sun are just a dream. In each aspect of her life, Maureen radiated her dream, pure, clear, transparent. Her Zen was not reserved for the Zendo, the lecture hall or the conference room. It was expressed at the piano and at the stove, with her own children and with the children of her students, in restaurants and in concert halls. In every moment, in every place, she was always completely, vividly present. She often spoke about her feelings of intimacy with Soen Roshi after having, quote, joined the majority, unquote, his favorite expression for death, he was nonetheless right there for her. Sometimes um, we we it isn't until people die that um, we really realize this the way in which um, they live on with us in us through us moment by moment it can take physical death for us to really appreciate it even though it's so when people are alive as well Now for the rest of our Taito today, I'm going to just um, explore some some of uh, Maureen Stewart's teachings. And today these will be mostly coming from uh, meetings with remarkable women. first part that we're reading from is um, extracts of, of her teachings during a, a session that the, the writer of this book, Lenore Friedman, attended um, in, in California. Uh, it was a session um, for women, women only. We are warrior women, Maureen says in her first formal talk the next morning. She reads us a story about the nun teacher, Shido, who founded Tokeji Monastery. After receiving formal approval to teach from her master, Choke, of Peachtree Valley, she was challenged by the head monk to prove her learning. Um, 
and the the monk um, may have been challenging on this her on this particular issue because um, at that at that time um, women often didn't didn't receive the same education as um, as men did so um, teaching on the sutras might be be challenging and um, just to give you the dates of this um, Kakuzan Shido Twelve fifty-two to thirteen oh five, so just a little bit later than um, Master Dogen. And uh, Kakuzan Shido was from a, a very powerful samurai family, and in fact, she was married to the shogun of the time, Tokumune, and she studied uh, under a Chinese a Chan master, uh, Wu Sui Zuyuan. Um, and then after her her husband died, she, um, she became a nun. And uh, this was a time of very uh, great strife and um, power struggles. And uh, uh, there were, were uh, conflicts between her own family and her husband's family, and actually her her own son, put to death a large number of members of her, her his mother's family because he was he was scared that they were um, uh, would betray him. So she came from an extremely uh, violent, um, uh, death-filled background, and she went on to found. Um, to- Tokeji, um, which still still stands and is a as a is a um, um, in um, Kamakura. So she founded Tokeji in in twelve eighty five, and it was um, set up as a refuge for women who might be escaping um, war or strife. Um, uh, and then later on, it it became uh, known for as a refuge for women seeking divorce because in Japanese law, um, woman, a man could divorce a woman, but a woman could not divorce her husband even if he was abusing her. So people were, um, women would come to this temple to es- escape and if they, I think, if they stayed for two years, then they they could um, return uh, to the world after that. But the thing that's probably most fascinating about Tokeji was that um, um, it developed a, a, a new form of teaching, which was called Mirror Zen. Uh, it was famous for this this teaching and also for its its Vesaks, its Buddha's birthday celebrations. Uh, but this mirror Zen involved uh, doing zazen, gazing into a mirror. And examining examining what what the what the experience of seeing one's reflection is.
imagine this would be could be very fertile ground um, f- for women in a society which puts so much emphasis on on um, physical beauty and appearance. You know, that's that's a little bit of back, background material. But back to the story. I'll give you the the slightly fuller version of the story that appears in Hidden Lamp. The nun Kakuzan Shido trained at the notoriously tough Rinzai Monastery in Gakuji. Her teacher, Toke, whose name meant Peach Tree Valley, gave her Inca transmission and the authority to be an independent teacher. In the transmission ceremony, Shido, t- Shido took the seat in front of the altar and the monks asked her questions to test her skill. When it was the head monk's turn, he challenged her, in our lineage, anyone who receives Inca must give a discourse on the sutras. Are you really capable of doing this? Shido pulled out a ten-inch dagger carried by all women of the warrior class and held it in front of his face. Every Zen teacher in the lineage of our master should teach the sutras, she said. But I am a woman of the warrior line and I speak the Dharma face to face with my dagger drawn. What need do I have for books? He persisted with another question. What is your original understanding before your parents were born? She answered by sitting in silence with her eyes lowered. Then she said, Do you understand? The monk answered with a verse. Here in Peachtree Valley, a wine gourd has been drained to the last drop. Drunken eyes see ten miles of flowers. So a beautiful verse and 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 an affirmation from this um, this head monk of uh, her inside. A little bit reminds me of of uh, poetry by Rumi, where often drunkenness is is used as a as a metaphor for um, complete oneness with the, uh, the ultimate. Some people may be wondering what an, what a um, a Buddhist nun was doing with with um, a dagger under her robes, uh, but perhaps we can we can uh, take this as a metaphor for Manjushri's sword. It's the sword that um, the delusion cutting sword cuts away uh, what is uh, obstructing us. So anyhow, how Maureen Stewart here evokes um, this this uh, Japanese uh, very innovative teacher Kakuzan Shido. Uh, 
Maureen says she heard some people were afraid of practicing with a Rinzai teacher. These Rinzai people are formidable. They would cut off your head without a thought. This cutting off, of course, is not the cutting off of heads, but ultimately cutting off our illusions. So I do sit here and strongly urge you from the very first sitting of this wonderful time together to cut off, cut off, cut off. Become plain and simple. This, this is, is uh, very good advice for us. We can make things so complicated with our thoughts, our attachments, complicated, confused, unclear. Really, our job in Sishin is to become plain and simple. To, to lop off all that that um, comes between us and that simple presence. Just to 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 cut off really it means to come back cleanly to the breath or the koan. This moment. It doesn't mean to uh, suppress anything or push anything away because if we do that, we just give our thoughts energy. Rather, rather just to treat those thoughts lightly, to be nimble. She talks about the true person, the one unlimited true person to be found in each of us. What else are we here to do? This true person is neither male nor female, student nor teacher, past, present nor future. It is all in one and one in all. And when this is realized, there is no more worry about not being perfect. We can move freely. Whatever occurs, we freely respond. Freely coming, freely going. Freely moving, freely speaking, freely acting. The true person in us is here to awaken to itself. This, this true person, as Rinzai put it, this true person of no rank. No, in other words, no label. This true person is, is crying out to be realized. She cautions us not to become attached to Rinzai or to herself or to any teacher. This is so important, and if we aren't careful of this, if we if we do become attached, then then 
um, we can be really working at, at cross purposes to, to what practice is all about. Somebody um, a while ago um, put me onto a YouTube clip from a from a Hindu teacher. His name is um, Swami Nirajananda Saraswati. Um, and uh, was just impressed with his straightforward um, message about teachers that I took some notes on what he was saying. Uh, one of the things he said is, um, and it's really good to be reminded of this, he said that the, the, he's talking about, he, he talks about the guru. The guru is a motivator, yes, but we have to do the work ourselves. And he likens the role of the guru to um, a traffic policeman, you know, when they have somebody who directs, maybe when the lights have, have failed at a at an intersection, and they bring in a guy who stands there. And I don't know if this happens in the states, but in New Zealand they used to wear white special white gloves, and then they would they would um, direct the cars uh, standing in the middle of the road there. And he says he says that. The guru is like a traffic policeman because she or he shows you the direction you have to go, but you are in the driver's seat and you actually have to make the journey to the destination. He went on to say that some disciples get stuck in their attachment to the guru and often it's because they don't want to take on the responsibility for their lives. And that unfortunately it's the same with some gurus that they can become, he described them as donkeys, carrying all the burdens of their students. But if, you know, if, if a teacher does this, gets t- tempted to do this, then it's an unbearable burden. Sometimes in India, the guru is called the dispeller of darkness, apparently. And um, he commented, well, yes, that's true in the sense that um, the guru can hand you a torch so that you can make your way, but the guru doesn't carry that torch for you so that your journey is easy. Actually, you have to carry the torch. He also told, told the story about his own teacher who, who um, had actually only had a 10-minute um, encounter with his guru, and that was all that was necessary. And the exchange, exchange between them went um, from his guru, Swami, said, what are you doing? And then this, this guy, the student said, I'm searching for my guru. And the Swami said, I am your guru, and gave him various um, initiations. And that apparently was all he needed, and he said that he never felt the absence of the guru after that for the rest of his life. So in other words, to, to work with a teacher is to awaken in us 
our own inner teacher. That's that's the point, and that's the point that Maureen Stewart is making in her in her Taisho. The the um, Indian teacher who is giving this talk then also said, "I have always been a disciple. I have never thought of myself as a guru." I'm not a guru. People have given me that label. And if I accept that label, I'll also have to accept a demon, a rakshasa. I'll have to accept that also. In other words, if I if I get attached to the label of of guru or teacher. And he said uh, I won't try and do the the, the Indian accent, but it, it, it <laughs> I can remember it. If today they call me a god, tomorrow they could call me a dog. These are merely designations from others. I do not rely on them. God, dog, do I make my life according to their opinion, or do I remain what I am? If you think that I am a god, that is your problem. If you think that I am a dog, that is your problem. I am the invisible child of of 1,000 faces. Many, many things. And he, he finished up by saying, the moment I identify with my attainments and achievements, I distance myself from God. I distance myself from my from guru, meaning inner teacher. More Institute continues, the true teacher is your own zazen. Sitting in the strong, grounded posture allows us to become still, composed. In this stillness, the deep stillness of this house, this zendo, the difference between inner and outer, motion and rest is resolved. And alert and present to what is going on, we forget ourselves. Absorbed in just being, we realize that this one mind is not created or owned by anyone's ego. It is a universal wakefulness that every one of us can tap into. As Sashin goes ahead, we feel this more and more. People become more gentle, more alert, more vividly awake, more vividly grateful for such time together. This is, this is what we can really put our faith in and put our trust in, that, that our zazen itself is our, is, is our teacher. We can put our trust in this process of, of settling the mind, becoming still, listening in that stillness. Or as it, as, as it says in the Diamond Sutra, arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. Arouse this universal wakefulness that's our birthright.
open ourselves to this. Feel it, live it. We stop here and recite the four vows. without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow.